Welcome to another installment of Capital Ideas. We call it that because it's a podcast where members of the majority Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about, you guessed it, ideas. This one is special. We got to visit with Representative Lauren Davis. She comes to Olympia from the 32nd District, which straddles the line between King and Snohomish counties and includes Shoreline, a bit of northwest Seattle, Linwood, part of Edmonds, and a lot of Washingtonians. Lauren is in her first term in the House, one of the legislature's younger members, but her resume, which you'll hear about in a moment, makes her one of the most accomplished and apparently energetic lawmakers in Olympia. This way-too-short conversation took place Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019. See what you think. Welcome, Representative Lauren Davis. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dan. Glad to be here. You're a brand-new legislator. You have now, at the point where we're recording this, you've got about eight days under your belt as a state lawmaker. Who are you, and how did you get here? I think that's something that, for almost all new lawmakers, people find interesting. Sure. So it was sort of an interesting path. I certainly never had any intention of serving in this capacity, though I'm very grateful to be here. I studied uh, ethnic studies in college. I have always had a very strong social justice orientation. First job was as a Head Start preschool teacher. After college, lived in West Africa and Ghana for a number of years, started a small social business there that's still running, did education work there as a Fulbright fellow, and I thought I'd spend the rest of my career actually doing international development work, came home, worked at the Gates Foundation. But when I came home, when I was 24 years old, I found my best friend, Ricky Garcia, really gravely ill with untreated alcoholism and opiate addiction. And... While I was working at the Gates Foundation, I, I became his primary caregiver uh, at age 24 and spent two really traumatic years with him in and out of the emergency department over 75 times. He was on life support on three separate occasions, and we almost lost him. And fortunately, thanks to the miracle of recovery, Ricky got better. He he um, got over six years in long-term recovery and I, I quit my whole career in international development, and I helped to start two subsequent nonprofits, one in suicide prevention and the other in mental health and addiction recovery. And outside the legislature, I run that organization called the Washington Recovery Alliance. And uh, during the course of all that, in my free time, I came down to Olympia as a citizen advocate and ended up leading the passage of some legislation called Ricky's Law, named after my friend, uh, that ended up being a really significant transformation in the way we do crisis services for people with life-threatening addiction. And it was a very significant investment in treatment services. And that led me here quite by accident. At that point, you were actually recruited to maybe try for office by some of the people that you met down here. That's correct. A number of women in the House Democratic Caucus asked me to run and I was very flattered and I said no many times. Uh, and But then I watched them work and I was so moved and inspired by the transformative work they were able to do in one session or two sessions. And it took me so many years of work as this labor of love on Ricky's Law. And it, it occurred to me that they were right, that I could do more for good on things that matter to me and the people I love and the community I love and serve here as a lawmaker. I know that your district, like all districts, has a number of issues. You're not going to only deal with one issue while you're down here. But the first bill that you did introduce has to do with recovery. I don't think that's a coincidence. It has to do with the next stage of recovery after a person has received 
some sort of treatment or maybe gone through the early stages of a 12-step program, and that's a period at which people are pretty vulnerable. Tell me what made you focus in on that. Is there a problem that you, you see that the state can really have a role in? Absolutely. So we think of the continuum of care and addiction services as threefold or three-pronged prevention, treatment, and recovery. The state has invested actually mostly flow through federal funds in prevention and treatment, which is terrific, but we have not invested much of anything in recovery support services, which is really that third leg of the stool. And this is a suite of services that help keep a person who's in early recovery uh, and get them to the point of being in long-term recovery. These are things like recovery housing, some support with getting a job, particularly for folks with missing work history or who may have been wrapped up in the justice system at some point, recovery coaching, which are paid professional peers that help really walk alongside someone and pick up the pieces of their broken life and go quash old warrants or help them get their kids back from the Children's Administration and overcoming barriers to recovery uh, and support for families as well. We have not invested state dollars in, in those suite of services really at all. And it's imperative that we do because investing in, in treatment alone without the recovery support services is not likely to have the kind of effect that we're hoping for in terms of not just lives saved and, and families restored, but also cost savings in, in health care and criminal justice. This seems like a no-brainer. The state wouldn't build a new office building, open the doors, and then fail to maintain it. Uh, they wouldn't spend millions of dollars on a new bridge and then just walk away and assume that that bridge is going to be fine forever and it doesn't really need any maintenance. So this does seem like, to me, a good use of a few dollars to buttress the investment of money and also in human lives that, that they've already made. That's exactly right. You know, one thing that we know is that the majority of individuals in our state who are dying of overdoses, who are experiencing homelessness, living in encampments maybe, who are incarcerated because of their addiction, most of them at some point were in recovery. And, and that's a system failure. If people are entering treatment, which is an incredibly heroic decision, and relapsing, often that failure is on us, it's on the system, it's, it's often not on that individual person. And it's essentially as if we are paying for surgery and not paying for the physical therapy afterwards and blaming the surgery for not working. If we were, were trying to integrate, and we have integrated behavioral health services into the medical model, and yet uh, we are not funding these really critical follow-up services. If a person is in remission from cancer, they're still going to have follow-up checks and, and uh, exams and scans to make sure that that cancer remains in remission. And we don't do that in addiction treatment. We graduate people and we send them out the door with a backpack full of every problem that ever drove them to drink and use in the first place. And then we take away the one coping skill they had, which was drugs and alcohol. You've talked about funding, and that's going to be a question that occurs to everybody who listens to this, which is, what kind of a funding mechanism are you looking at? I'm going to explore all possible options. We want to leverage as much in the way of federal dollars as we can. And there are certain existing federal programs that can be used for recovery support services, things like the Substance Use Disorder Block Grant, even TANF funds, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Some of the child care funds can be used for child care for individuals in early recovery. So there are ways to form a patchwork quilt to the extent possible, maximizing federal funds to serve this population. 
but there will be a need for some general fund state allocation. And my sincere hope is that my colleagues here in the legislature are willing to make a significant investment in this population because we are in the shadow of an opioid crisis, and I believe we have a moral obligation to respond. One of the themes of this session is going to be trying to increase the supply of affordable housing in Washington, and it seems that that might be a good opportunity for you to piggyback on that wave to totally mix metaphors there and see if some of this affordable housing could be used for people who are in this early stage, this vulnerable stage of recovery. Certainly. I think the messaging is that we need a menu of housing options and there was a lot of conversation around permanent supportive housing for individuals with behavioral health challenges. But the reality is that many individuals in the population that I advocate for, individuals with substance use disorder as their primary diagnosis, don't actually need permanent supportive housing. They do not need that level of intensive services. And in fact, the majority of that population is capable of working full-time and paying their own rent. And so the bill that I've introduced really provides that modicum of initial support. I'm also incredibly supportive of the entire menu of options, everything from permanent supportive housing for individuals with serious mental health challenges to affordable housing for families to homelessness prevention programs, uh, some eviction reforms. The reality is we need an entire range of services and we need more flexibility for people to move between levels of care. We do need low barrier harm reduction housing. We also need recovery housing. It's not one or the other. The answer is yes and. Do you know if other states are out front on this? That's a great question. Many, 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 many states are investing significantly in recovery support services through a variety of means. In some cases, trying to draw down those federal funds to the extent possible, often relying on their general fund state dollars. In some cases, we've seen public-private partnerships, which is something I would certainly entertain here in Washington. Frankly, I'm open to, to any and all possibilities that serve this population and are really going to translate into families being restored and really quelling this epidemic that is truly robbing parents from their children and, and children from their parents. I know you've got a tight schedule, and I really appreciate you giving us a few minutes today, Lauren. I'm positive that we're going to be talking some more about some other issues, and so I don't think this is the last time that the people who listen to Capital Ideas will be hearing from Lauren Davis. I appreciate you coming today. Thank you so much, Dan. Well, I said this one was special, and I didn't lie. Thanks for listening to Capital Ideas, and if you think you got your money's worth, I invite you to subscribe to Capital Ideas on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other site that deals in fine podcasting. This is your state government, and what happens here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you and the issues you care about. On behalf of the Washington State House Democrats, I'm Dan Frizzell. Check back soon for another new Capital Ideas.